Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth. I think it's. I think we're up to 19. I know this stuff's uh, not the most popular, but Pink is great. He's 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 really great. He's the best of the modern Puritan writers. And we're continuing its recovery. Though the Holy Spirit alone can effect the much-to-be-desired change in the withered and barren believer, yet God has appointed certain means which are subservient to that end. And if we neglect those means, then it is no wonder. We have reason to complain and cry out, My leanness, my leanness, woe unto me! The treacherous stealers have dealt treacherously, yea, the treacherous stealers have dealt very treacherously. Isaiah 24.16 And therefore an altercation for the better cannot reasonably be expected. Excuse me, an alteration for the better. If we entertain hope of an improvement of our condition while we neglect the appointed means, our expectations will certainly issue in a sorrowful disappointment. And thus we be thoroughly persuaded of that we shall remain inert. While we cherish the idea that we can do nothing and must fatally, and must fatally stick away to sovereign reviving from God, we shall go on waiting. But if we realize what God requires from us, of us, it will serve to deepen our desires after reviving and stimulate us into a compliance with those things that we must do if he is to grant us showers of refreshment and strengthening of those things in us which are ready to die. There has to be an asking, a seeking, a knocking if the door of deliverance is to be opened unto us. It was not an Arminian but a high Calvinist, John Bryan, whose works received the most favorable review in the Gospel Standard of October 1852, who wrote to God's people two centuries ago, Much labor and diligence are required into this. It is not complaining of the sickly condition of our souls which will affect this, this cure. Confession of our follies that have brought disease upon us, though repeated ever so often, will avail nothing towards the removal of them. If we intend on the recovery of our former health and vigor, we must act as well as complain and groan. We must keep at a distance from those persons and those snares which have drawn us into instances of folly, which have occasioned that disorder which is the matter of our complaint. Without this, we may multiply acknowledgments and expressions of concern for our past miscarriages to no avail at all. It is a very great folly to think of regaining our former strength, so long as we embrace and dally with those objects through whose evil influence we have fallen into a spiritual decline. It is not our bewailing of the pernicious effects of sin that will prevent its baleful influence upon us for time to come, except we are determined to forsake that to which is owing our melancholy disorder. It is not nearly so simple to act on that counsel as many may imagine. Habits are not easily broken, nor objects relinquished with which have obtained a powerful hold upon our affections. The natural man is wholly regulated and dominated by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And the only way in which their prevalency over a Christian is broken is by an unsparing mortification of those lusts. Just so soon as we become slack in denying self or in governing our affections and passions, alluring objects draw us to a dalliance with them, to the blighting of our spirituality, and recovery is impossible until we abandon such evil charmers. But just so far as they have obtained a hold upon us will, will be the difficulty of breaking from them. Difficult because it will be contrary to our natural inclinations and pre-regenerate lives. If I not right, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that if one of thy members should perish, then thy whole body shall be cast into hell. Matthew 5.29 Christ did not teach that the mortifying of a favorite lust was a simple and painless matter. And so his followers would be slow to take to heart that unpalatable injunction. The Lord Jesus went on to say, and if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off from, cast it from thee, for it is profitable from thee that one of thy members shall perish. 
and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. As the eye is our most, most precious member, so especially to the laboring man, the right hand is the most useful and valuable one. But that figurative language Christ taught us that our de- dearest idol must be renounced, our bosom must lust mortified. No matter how pleasing be the object which would be- beguile us, it must be denied. Such a task would prove as hard and painful as the cutting off of a hand. They had no anesthetics in those days. But if men are willing to have a gangrene limb amputated to save their lives, why should we shrink from painful sacrifices under the saving of our souls? Heaven and hell are involved by, by uh, are involved by whether grace or our senses rule our souls. You must not expect to enjoy the pleasures of earth and heaven too, and not think to pass from Delilah's lap into Abraham's bosom. Thomas Manton. That which is demanded of the Christian is far from being child's play. Again, we must do the first works if we design a revival of our graces. This calls for humility and diligence. To both, which our proud and slothful hearts are too much disinclined, we must be content to begin afresh, both to learn and to practice, since though carelessness and sloth are gone backward in knowledge and practice too. It sometimes is with the saints as with schoolboys, who by their negligence are so far from improvement that they have almost forgotten the rudiments of a language, or an art that they have begun to learn, in which case it is necessary that they must make a new beginning. This suits not with pride, but unto it they must submit. So the Christian sometimes has need of being taught again what are the first principles of the oracle of God, when for the first time he has been in the school of Christ, his improvement ought to be such as would fit him for giving instruction to others and these plain and easy principles. But through neglect he has let them slip, and he must content to pass through the very same lessons of conviction, sorrow, humiliation, and repentance he learned long since the Holy Spirit. Whatever we think of the matter, a revival cannot be without it. That's a quote of Brine. It is that humbling of our pride which makes recovery so difficult to a backslider. Number four. Now we shall consider its conditionality, or those things which it is suspended a term which will hardly please some of our readers, yet it is a correct one to use in this connection, but since various writers have used the term in a different ways, it is requisite that we explain the sense in which we have employed it. When we say there are certain conditions which an erring saint must fulfill before he can be restored to fellowship with God, we do not use the term in any legalistic sense or mean that there is anything meritorious in his performances. It is not that God strikes a bargain, offering to bestow certain blessings in certain things done by us, but rather that he has appointed a certain order, a connection between one thing and another, and that for the maintaining of his honor, the holiness of his governance, and the enforcement of our responsibility. In all his dealings with us, God acts in grace, but his grace ever reigns through righteousness and never at the expense of it. He that covereth the sin shall not prosper, but whoso shall confess it and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 Now there is nothing meritorious in confessing and forsaking sins, nothing which gives title to mercy, but require, God requires them from us, and we have no warrant to expect mercy without them. That verse expresses the order of things which God has established, a holy order, so that divine mercy is exercised without any connivance and sin exerted in a way wherein we take sides of him in the hatred of our sins. And the best way to distinguish this is we're talking about salvation in the broad sense of the term. We're talking about sanctification, um, where you do have to cooperate, where you do have to obey the means of grace, where you do have to study and pray and do all these things to progress. We're not talking about earning justification, which is an instant act of God, which is never repeated. But in sanctification, you, do, you can go down and then you can go back up. And it requires effort 
daily effort. Is health of body is conditioned or suspended upon the eating of suitable food or the healing of it upon partaking of certain remedies? So it is with the soul. Though a definite connection between the two things, food and strength, the one must be received in order to the other. In like manner, forgiveness of sins is promised only to those who repent and believe. Whether you term repenting and believing conditions, means, instruments, or the way of amounts to the same thing, for they simply signify that they are what God requires from us before he bestows forgiveness. Requires not as a prize in our hands, but as a way of congruity. And I think you need to make a distinction between the initial repentance, which is connected to your first faith, where you believe in Christ and receive justification, and the repentance, the continued repentance that is required in sanctification, just, just to make a clear distinction. So it's not as though you lose your salvation and regain it, lose your salvation and regain it. That's not what's happening. Some may ask, but it's not God promised I will heal your backslidings, Hosea 14.4. To which we reply, yes, that promise is not an absolute or unconditional one, as the context plainly shows. In the verses preceding, God calls upon them to return to him because they have fallen by their iniquity. He bids them, take with you words and turn to the Lord, saying to him, take away all iniquity. Moreover, they pledge themselves to reformation of conduct, verses 1 to 3. Neither would we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. Thus it is unto penitent and confessing souls who abandon their idols, the promise is made. God does indeed heal our backslidings, but not without our concurrence, not without the humbling of ourselves before him, not without complying with his holy requirements. God does indispensably demand certain things of us in order to the enjoyment of certain blessings. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But if expresses the condition or reveals the connection between which God has appointed between our defilement and his removal of it. We are therefore going to point out what the conditions of recovery from a spiritual decline or what are the means of restoration for a backslider. And what is the way of dependence for one who is departed from God? Before turning to specific cases recorded in the scripture, let us all, let us again call attention to Proverbs 28, 13 first. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. To cover our sins is refusing to bring them out in the light by an honest confession of them unto God or to hide them from our fellows, or refuse to acknowledge offenses that, to those we have wronged. While such be the case, there can be no prosperity of soul, no communion with God or his people. Second, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. To confess means to freely, frankly, and penitently owe them, own them over to God, unto God. And to our fellows, if our sins have been against them, to forsake our sins is a voluntary and deliberate act. It signifies to loathe and abandon them in our affections, to repudiate them by our wills, to refuse to dwell upon them in our minds and imaginations with any pleasure or satisfaction. But suppose the believer does not promptly thus confess and forsake his sins. In such case, not only will he not prosper, not only can there be now no further spiritual growth, but peace of conscience and joy of heart will depart from him. The Holy Spirit is grieved, and he will withhold his comforts. And suppose that does not bring him to his senses, then what? Let the case of David furnish answer. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. The bones are the strength and upholders of the bodily frame. And when used figuratively, the waxing of them old signifies that vigor and support of the soul is gone. So that it sinks into anguish and despair. Sin is a pestilent, pen, pest, pestilential thing which saps our vitality. Though David was silent as to confession, he was uh, so as to, 
though David was silent as to confession, he was not so as to sorrow. God's hand smote his conscience and afflicted his spirit, so that he was made to groan under the rod. He had no rest by spirit, so that he was made to groan under his rod. He had no rest by day or night. Sin haunted him in his dreams, and he woke un unrefreshed. Like one in a drought, he was barren and fruitless. Not until he turned to the Lord in contrite confession was there any relief for him. Let us now turn to an experience suffered by Abraham that illustrates our present subject, though few perhaps have considered it as a case of spiritual relapse. Following upon his full response to the Lord's call to enter the land of Canaan, we are told that the Lord appeared unto Abraham. Genesis 12:7. <coughs> so it is now. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them is he that it loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and manifest myself unto him. John 14, 21. It is not to the self-willed and self-pleasing, but to the obedient one that the Lord draws near in the intimacies of his love and makes himself a, real, a reality and satisfying portion. The manifestation of Christ to the soul should be a daily experience. And if it is not, then our hearts ought to be deeply exercised before him. If there is not the regular appearing of the Lord, it must be because we have wandered from the path of obedience. Next, we are told that the patriots respond to the Lord's appearance and the gracious promise he made to him. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. The altar speaks of worship, the heart's pouring out of itself in adoration and praise. That order is unchanging. Occupation of the soul with Christ, beholding with the eyes of faith, the king in his beauty, and what alone will bow us before him in true worship. Next, he removeth from thence unto a mountain. Genesis 12, 8. Spiritually speaking, the mountain is a figure of elevation of spirit, soaring above the level in which the world lies, the affections being set above things above. The affections being set upon things above. It tells of a heart detached from the scene, attached to and exhorted by him who has passed within the veil. It is not written, they wait upon the Lord, shall renew their strength, but they shall mount up with wings as eagles. Isaiah 40, 31. Excuse me, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as eagles with, with wings as eagles. How many say this mountain <coughs> experience be maintained? Is such a thing possible? We believe it is. And at it we should constantly aim, not being content with anything that falls short of it. The answer is revealed in what immediately follows. And pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. The tent is the symbol of the stranger of one who has no home or abiding place in the scene which cast out of it the Lord of glory. We never read that Abraham built himself any house in Canaan as Lot occupied one in Sodom. No, he was but a sojourner, and his tent was a sign and demonstration of, his, of this character. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and from this point onwards two things characterize him, his tent and his altar, 12, 8, 13, 3, and 4, 13, 18. In each of those passages, the tent is mentioned first, where we cannot truly and acceptably worship God on high unless we maintain our character as sojourners here below. That is why the exhortation is made, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from freshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11. And so quench the spirit of worship. Are we contending ourselves as those who are partakers of the heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1? Do our manners, our dress, our speech evidence the same to others? Ah, dear reader, do we not write there the explanation of why it is that a mountain experience is so little enjoyed and still less maintained by us? Is it not because we have descended to the plains, came down to the level of empty professors and whitewashed worldlings, set our affection on things below, and in consequence become comforted to this world? If you really be Christ, he has delivered us, 
judicially from this present evil world, Galatians 1.4, and delivered our hearts and lives, should be separated from it in a practical way. Our home is on high, and the fact ought to mold every detail of our lives. Of Abraham and his fellow saints, it is recorded they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, Hebrews 11.13. Confessed it by their lives as well as their lips. And it is added, wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, verse 16. But alas, too many now are afraid to, consider, to be considered peculiar and to escape criticism and ostracism, comp compromise, hide their light under a bushel, come down to the level of the world. The young Christian might well suppose that one who is in the path of obedience, who is going on wholeheartedly with God, who is a man of the tent of the altar, would be quite immune from any fall. So he will be while he maintains the relationship and attitude. But it is, alas, very easy for him to relax a little and gradually depart from it. Not that such a departure is to be expected or excused on the ground that since the flesh remains in the believer, it is only to be looked for, that he will not be long ere unmistakably manifest itself. Not so. He that saith he abideth in me ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John 2, 6. Full provision has been made by God for him to do so. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, but that you should obey it in its lusts thereof. Romans 6, 12. But Abram did suffer a relapse, a serious one. And it is profitable for us to observe and take to heart the various steps which preceded Peter's open denial of Christ. So it is to ponder in turn and to earn a supplication that which befell the patriarch before he went down into Egypt. First, we are told, and Abraham journeyed, verse 9. Nor is it said that he had received any other order from God to move his tent from the place where he was in communion with, with him. That by itself would not be conclusive. But in the light of that which follows, it seems to indicate plainly there was a spirit of restlessness that had now seized him. And restlessness, my reader, indicates there is no longer contentment, content with our lot. The solemn thing to observe is that the starting point in the path of Abraham's decline was that he left Bethel, and Bethel means the house of God, to a place of fellowship with him. All that follows is recorded as a warning of what we expect if we leave Bethel. Abraham's leaving Bethel was the root of his failures, and in the sequel we are shown the bitter fruit which sprang from it. This is a place which Peter left, for he, for he followed Christ afar off. That was the place which the Ephesians backslider forsook, though it's left thy first love. The day we become lax in maintaining communion with God, the door is open for many evils to enter the soul. <clears throat> and Abram journeyed. The Hebrew is more expressive and emphatic. Literally, it reads, And Abraham journeyed in going and journeying. A restless spirit possessed him, which is a sure sign that communion with God had broken. I am bidden to rest in the Lord, Psalm 36, 37, 6. And I can only do so, as long as I delight myself also in the Lord, verse 4. But second, it is recorded of Abraham going on still toward the south, Genesis 12, 9. And southward was Egyptian word. Most suggestive and solemnly accurate is that line of the picture. Turning e Egyptian word is ever the logical outcome of leaving Bethel and becoming possessed of a restless spirit. From the Old Testament, Egypt is the outstanding symbol of the world. If the believer's heart be right, with his Redeemer, he can say, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. But if Christ no longer fully absorbs him, then some other object will be sought. No Christian gets right back into the world at a single step, nor did Abraham. He journeyed toward the south before he entered Egypt. Third, there was a famine in the land, verse 10. Highly significant was that. The trial of his faith, says someone, not at all. 
rather a showing of the red light, God's danger signal of what lay ahead. It was a searching call for the patriarch to pause and consider his ways. Faith needs no trials when it is in a normal and healthy exercise. It is when it has become encrusted with the dross of the fire that the fire is necessary to purge it. There was no famine at Bethel. <clears throat> of course not. There is always fullness of provision there. The analogy of scripture is quite against a famine being sent for the testing of faith. See Genesis 26.1, Ruth 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Samuel 22.1, etc. In each case, the famine was a divine judgment. Christ is the bread of life, and to wander from him necessarily brings famine to the soul. It was when the restless son went into the far country that he began to be in want. Luke 15. This famine, then, was a message of providence that God was displeased with Abram. So we should regard unfavorable providences. They are a call from God to examine ourselves and to try our ways. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, verse 10. And thus it is with many of his children. Instead of being exercised by God's chastenings, Hebrews 12:11, as they should be, they treat them as a matter of course, as part of an inevitable, inevitable troubles which man is born into and thus despise them, Hebrews 12:5, and derive no good from them. Alas, the average Christian, instead of being exercised in conscience and mind unto God's rod, rather does ask, how may I most easily and quickly get from under it? If illness comes upon him, instead of turning to the Lord and asking, show me wherefore thou contendest with me, Job 10:4, they send for a doctor. Which, which is seeking relief in Egypt. Abram had left Bethel, and one who is out of communion with God cannot trust him with his temporal affairs. But he turns instead to the arm of the flesh. Observe well the woe which God has denounced upon those who go down into Egypt, turn to the world for help. Isaiah 30, 1 and 2. <clears throat> we cannot now dwell upon what is recorded in, in Genesis 12, 11 to 13, though it is unspeakably tragic. As soon as Abram drew near to Beth, Egypt, he began to be afraid. Dark shadows of that land fell across his soul before he actually entered it. He was sadly occupied with self, said to his wife, they will kill me. Say, I pray that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me. How true it is that the backslider in heart may be filled with his own ways, Proverbs 14, 14. Fearful of his own safety, Abraham asked his wife to repudiate her marriage to him. Abram was afraid to avow his true relationship. This is always what follows when a saint goes down into Egypt. He at once begins to equivocate. When he fellowships with the world, he dare not fly his true colors, but compromises. So far from Abram being made a blessing to the Egyptians, he became a great plague to them, verse 17. And in the end, they sent him away. What a humiliation. And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. Did he remain in that dangerous dis district? district? No, for he went on his journeys from the south. Observe, he received no distractions so to act. They were not necessary. His conscience told him what to do. He went on in his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place that his tent had been for, at the beginning, under the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord, 13.1-4. He again turned his back upon the world. He, ret he retraced his steps. He, he returned it to his pilgrim character and his altar. And note well, dear reader, it was there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. It had been a waste of time, a horrible mockery for him to have done so while he was down in Egypt. The Holy One will not hearken to us while we are sullying his name by our carnal walk. It is holy hands, First Timothy 2.8, or at least penitential ones which must lift up if we are to receive spiritual things from him. The case of Abraham sets before us. <clears throat> 
what it sets before us is clear and simple language is the way of recovery for the backslider. These words under the place where his tent had been at the beginning in cult, the same requirement is teach you again, which are be the first principles of the oracle of God, Hebrews 5.12. And re- again, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, Revelation 2.5. Our sinful failure must be judged by us. We must condemn ourselves unsparingly for the same. We must contritely confess it to God. We must forsake it resolving to have nothing further to do with those persons or things which occasioned our lapse. Yet something more than that is included in the do the works first works. There must be a renewing actings of faith on Christ, typified by Abraham's return to the altar. We must come to the Savior as we first came to him, as sinners, as believing sinners, trusting in the merits of his sacrifice and the cleansing efficacy of his blood. We must doubt not his willingness to receive and pardon us. It is one of the devices of Satan that after he has succeeded in drawing a soul away from God and entangling him in, in the net of his corruption to persuade him that the prayer of faith in his circumstances would be highly presumptuous and it is more, much more modest for him to stand alone from, aloof from God and his people. Now, if by faith were meant, as some would seem to understand, a persuading of ourselves that having trusted in the finished work of Christ as we, all is well with us forever, that would indeed be presumptuous. But sorrow for sin and betaking ourselves under the fountain, which has been open for sin and for uncleanness, Zechariah 13.1, is never out of season. Coming to Christ in our wretchedness and acting <coughs> faith upon him to heal our loathsome diseases both becomes us and honors him. The greater our sin has been, the greater reason is there that we should confess it to God and seek forgiveness in the name of the mediator. If our case be such that we feel we cannot do so as saints, we certainly ought to do so as sinners, as David did in Psalm 51, a psalm which been, has been recorded to furnish believers with instruction when they get into such a plight. This is the only way in which it is possible to find rest unto our souls, as there is none other, no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved, so neither is there any other by which a backsliding saint can be restored. Whatever be the nature or the extent of our departure from God, there is no other way of return to him but by the mediator. Moreover, be the wounds sins has inflicted upon our souls, there is no other remedy for them but the precious blood of the Lamb. If we have no heart to repent and return to God by Jesus Christ, then we are yet in our sins and may expect to reap the fruits of them. Scripture has no counsel short of that. <coughs> we have many encouragements to do so. God is of exceedingly great and tender mercy and willing to forgive all who return to him in the name of his Son. Though our sins be as scarlet, the atoning blood of Christ is able to cleanse them. There is plenteous redemption with him as Abram, David, Jonah, and Peter were restored. So may I, so may you be restored. And then we come to the final chapter. It's evidences. What are the principal marks of spiritual growth? What are the outstanding characteristics of the Christian's progress? To some of our readers, there may be, that may, be, may appear a simple question, the meaning of a ready answer. From one standpoint, that is so. Yet if we are to view it as a pro, in a proper perspective, careful consideration is called for. For ere we make reply, if we, if we bear in mind the real nature of spiritual growth, and remember it is like that of a tree, downward as well as upward, inward as well as outward, we shall be preserved from mere generalizations. If, too, we take into account the three grades under which the Christians are grouped, you shall be careful to distinguish between those things which respectfully evidence growth in the babes, in the young men, and in the fathers in Christ. 
That which is suited to it marks the growth of a babe in Christ applies not to one who has reached a more advanced form in his, in his school. And that which characterizes the full-grown Christian is not to be looked for in the immature one. It follows, then, that certain characteristics must be drawn if a definite and detailed answer is to be furnished to our opening inquiry. <clears throat> but since we have already written at some length of the three grades of the Christian development and have sought to describe those features which pertain more distinctly to those in the stage of the blade, the ear, and the full corn in the ear, there is no need for us now to go over the same ground. If it be borne in mind that growth is of a relative thing, we shall see that the same unit of measurement is not applicable in all cases. As the yardstick is the best means for gauging the growth of children, and the weighing scales are registering that of the adults, then too, if we take into consideration, as we should, differences of privilege and opportunity, of teaching and training, of station and circumstances, uniform progress should not be expected. Some believers have much more to contend against than others. It is not that we would limit the grace of God, but that we should recognize and take into account the distinctions which Scripture itself draws. The relative growth of one who is severely handicapped may be much greater in reality than of another who, in more favorable circumstances, makes greater progress. In my experience, somebody raised as a strict Christian in a solid family uh, has a great advantage over somebody raised as a total heathen swine. Both have... Both have to deal with the sinful nature, obviously. But the one who was raised a pagan has all these sinful habits that they developed as a pagan that have to be constantly knocked down as a Christian. As where somebody raised a strict Christian is not going to have the same background, uh, the same deficits of background uh, that plague this person raised as a pagan. The man who plants a tr fruit tree in a fertile valley is warranted to expect a better yield from it than one who is set in a soil of an exposed hillside. When a young Christian is favored with pious parents or brothers or sisters who encourage him, both by counsel and example, how much more may be looked for from him than another who dwells in the home of the ungodly? An unmarried woman who does not have to earn her living has more opportunity for reading, meditation, and prayer and nurturing of her spiritual soul than one who has the care of a young family. One who is privileged to sit regularly under an edifying ministry has better opportunity for Christian progress than another. Who is denied such a privilege? Again, the man with two talents cannot produce as much as another with five. Yet if the former gain another two by them, he just just as well proportionally as the one who makes five into ten. The Lord himself takes note of such differences. For whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. Luke twelve forty-eight. Let us also point out that we are not now going to write on the marks or signs of spiritual life as such, but rather of the evidences of the growth of spiritual life, a much harder task. When we endeavor to examine ourselves for them, it is of great importance that we should know what to look for. If the Christian expects to find an improvement in the old man, he will most certainly be disappointed. If he looks for a waning of natural pride, a lessening of the worldly uh, workings of unbelief, a cessation of the risings within him of rebellion against, he will look in vain. Yet how many Christians are bitterly disappointed over this very thing and greatly cast on by the same? But they ought not to be, for God has nowhere promised to sublimate or spiritualize the flesh, nor to eradicate our corruptions in this life. Yet, it is the Christian's duty and privilege to so walk in the spirit that he will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 Though we be deeply humbled over our corruptions and mourn over them, yet our painful awareness of the same should not cause us to conclude that we have no spiritual growth. We're going to stop there and continue this next week, and we'll wrap up this book next week, Lord willing. But I just love Pink. I mean, he takes, 
he takes the Puritans and makes them easy to understand and quite simple. Because this is basically the Puritan or the Reformed, classical Reformed doctrine of sanctification, very evident. Is it convicting? Yes, it's very convicting because we all fall short. But we need to remind ourselves of these things because we cannot ever take anything for granted. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't, we've never arrived. We're going we're gonna to struggle and have to fight against the flesh the rest of our lives. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, Van Til would invite seminary students over to his apartment where he was living. And, uh, and he was in, I think he was around 82 years old. He was, I, think, I think he was over 80. And one of the guys said, oh, it must be great being an old guy, you, you know, not having to worry about the lust of the flesh and lusting after women and stuff. And Bantel said, what are you talking about? He said, I, I still struggle every day. You, you, that stuff never goes away until you're dead. The question is, are you fighting it? Are you obtaining victory through obedience to the word of God and attending a means of grace? Or are you surrendering to it? It never goes away. You know, now you develop godly habits over time that are helpful. But you're still going to have to struggle against the sinful flesh till the very day you die. That's a given. But we'll continue. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our beloved brother Pink and his ministry and his books. And uh, we thank you, Lord, and ingrain these things into our mind. Convict us. Cause us to be more diligent. Cause us to be more careful. Cause us to be uh, studious and strict in applying what we've learned to our own lives, that we may grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and not succumb and make provisions for our sinful flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.